A very warm welcome uh, to the lecture this evening. I'm Kimberly Hutchings. Uh, I'm the head of the International Relations Department. Um, and we're delighted to welcome you all to the inaugural lecture in the Fred Halliday Distinguished Lecture uh, Series. This is a series inaugurated by the International Relations Department in commemoration of Fred Halliday's exceptional legacy for the study of international relations at the LSE and, of course, elsewhere. We're absolutely delighted to have members of Fred's family and, and many of his friends and colleagues here uh, tonight. Um, those of you who didn't know Fred, uh, he was a very, very broad-ranging scholar, but above all, a passionate student of and commentator on the Middle East and on revolution in international politics, which does make it particularly poignant that he hasn't been around to witness the amazing events of the last year. But it makes it particularly fitting, and we are particularly pleased, that the first lecture in this series brings together these two great enthusiasms that Fred had, as you can see from the title up there, Framing the Arab Uprisings, a Historical Perspective. We're delighted to welcome the first speaker in the Fred Holliday Distinguished Lecture Series, Professor Juan Cole. Uh, we feel very, very uh, privileged to have got him to come and do this. Professor Cole is Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. His work for over three decades has been primarily concerned with putting the relationship of the West and the Muslim world into historical context. Recent books include Engaging the Muslim World, which came out in 2009, Napoleon's Egypt, Invading the Middle East, Middle East which came out in 2007. He's written very, very widely about Egypt, Iran, Iraq, South Asia, and he's also commented, as many of you will know, extensively on uh, the Middle East in the contemporary world. He's commentated on Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, the Iraq War, perhaps particularly famously, and recently, particularly importantly, the politics of Pakistan and of Afghanistan. And he's very famous for his blog, uh, which I hope you're all followers of, Informed Comment, which has got him into various kinds of interesting trouble over, over the years. It's impossible really to do justice to the breadth and depth of Professor Cole's scholarship in brief introductory remarks, but we're very honored that he's agreed to inaugurate the Fred Holliday Lecture Series. And so, without any more ado, I would like you please to welcome Professor Juan Cole, who will speak to us under the title, Framing the Arab Spring, Well, thank you very much, uh, Kimberly, for that very warm uh, introduction. Uh, and uh, uh, when here is such an introduction with some trepidation because it creates expectations. Um, I, and it, it is a matter of, of great honor and, uh, and uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm so glad to be here to, to inaugurate this particular lecture series. Fred Halliday uh, meant the world uh, intellectually to, I think, 
uh, all of my generation, certainly, of Middle East experts, uh, we all uh, read him assiduously. Uh, I, I'm, I'm his younger contemporary, so uh, he, he had already published two important books by the time I was in graduate school, plus a whole raft of articles. Uh, and we read him not only for the substance of his, uh, uh, of his investigations into Middle Eastern politics, uh, but for his keen moral intelligence, uh, for his uh, sharp uh, analytical <coughs> tools, uh, he taught us a lot about how to be not just a scholar, but to be a, an intellectual. And, and so it is, uh, um, as I say, a matter of great gratification to me to be here on this occasion. I want to talk today about uh, the events uh, in the Arab world um, of this uh, past year. Uh, and uh, that's another thing that Fred was never afraid to take on the contemporary. Um, and uh, uh, so that's another uh, uh, appropriate feature of this, of this talk. Uh, but uh, being a historian uh, rather than a political scientist, uh, of course, I want to insist that we, we look at these events in the context of, of, of the past. Uh, and I want also to use the past to point out some of the uh, ironies and, and to accentuate uh, some of the features of these uh, 2011 uh, changes in the Middle East. So let me begin with uh, the, the whole question of democracy and, and parliamentary rule. Uh, it is a feature of these revolts in the Middle East in 2011 that as far as I can tell, pretty much across the board, there has been a demand for, for transparent democratic parliamentary elections. Well, that's a little bit odd because much of the 20th century was spent in the Middle East burying parliaments. And I would argue to you that the critique of parliamentary governance that emerged in the early 20th century, both among uh, the Leninists and Lenin's heirs, and frankly among uh, uh, the fascists, uh, Mussolini and others, uh, was highly influential in a latent sort of way, not directly, but in a latent sort of way on Middle Eastern politics. Uh, when Mussolini took over Italy and, and in the early 20s abolished the Italian parliament. He received enormous numbers of telegraphs of congratulation that he'd done in the infamous thing. Uh, and of course, the Leninist uh, uh, critique of uh, parliamentary rule is that it's not actually representative. It is a tool of control by the business classes. Um, and um, not only that, but in the Middle Eastern context, parliamentarism, I think, got a bad name in the first half of the 20th century because it was so much associated with an imperial West. So 
in Egypt, which Brit the British conquered in, in 1882 and, and ruled fairly directly until 1922 and then continued to keep a hand in, let us say, after that, uh, all the way to 56. Um, the, the British did establish a chamber of deputies uh, in the teens. And it was really a Duma, it was a debating society. Uh, and after the Egyptians attained nominal independence from Britain in the wake of World War I, in 1922, uh, they set about writing a constitution. Uh, and in 23, they had parliamentary elections. Uh, Saad Zaglul, one of the uh, leaders of the independence uh, movement in Egypt, became prime minister. Uh, but again, all of this was happening in a peculiar context. Um, there were also, uh, even under direct French rule in, in Lebanon in, in the 30s, there were parliamentary elections. So parliaments were something uh, that the European colonial powers instituted, uh, and often as, as, a, as a way of co-opting a subsidiary elite. And uh, not only were they tainted by this uh, in the eyes of a lot of critics and ordinary people, not only were they tainted by this association with the imperial West, but they also had a, a peculiar class character. The parliaments of the 20th century Middle East, the first half, uh, tended to be big landlord parliaments. They, uh, they were maybe a little bit like the 18th century British Parliament uh, or the pre-revolutionary French Parliament. Uh, they were a game that the, the landed elite played. Uh, and um, uh, thereby hangs the tail because <clears throat> how did you get a landed elite in this period? Uh, land you know, was not a commodity in much of the world until fairly recently. Uh, and I know given your real estate costs in London, it may be strange to think that you couldn't buy and sell it necessarily in the past. Um, but uh, in the Ottoman Empire, there was no concept of, of parcel ownership of land. Uh, the, the Sultan owned all the land in theory, and then he doled it out in various semi-feudal ways as appanage and, uh, uh, and so forth, as, as land grants to nobles. And then the peasants on the land were thought to have rights in the land. They, weren't, they didn't own the land, they weren't property rights. But they had some kind of a right in the land. They had a right to be on it and to cultivate it. And uh, they could even sell those rights. Uh, and uh, so land was not a commodity and it was kind of its ownership, if you want to think about it as ownership, was layered and multiple. And under the impact of European law, um, and uh, uh, the land turned, got turned into a commodity. So in the old days, in the, in, the, in the Ottoman Empire, if peasants fell behind on their taxes, they, they weren't thrown off their farms, the, the, they simply had to pay the taxes owed on a rolling basis. And frankly, they may have, the, the Egyptians had this uh, bull hide whip that they applied to the peasants who were late with taxes. But they, they weren't thrown off their land. 
And if they owed money to a creditor, uh, and, and that was increasingly the case in the late 19th century, uh, as you got the beginnings of capitalist agriculture, uh, again, they, they wouldn't be foreclosed on. The idea of foreclosure wasn't there in Ottoman land law. Well, once European law came in, then the land becomes a commodity. If you fall behind on your rent, you all know, the students among you, what happens. Your furniture ends up in the sidewalk. Uh, so the, the, the peasants began being thrown off their land uh, by ambitious agricultural entrepreneurs uh, from the upper classes who would buy up uh, farms and uh, when peasants fell in arrears, buy up the debt and, and consolidate. And they made these enormous haciendas uh, uh, in the late 19th century Egypt, for instance, which were called esbas, uh, and just in, uh, huge, huge estates, uh, in which the peasants often were working as, as sharecroppers or as propertyless day laborers. Uh, and this was a new situation. By the turn of the century, by, by around 1900, there may have been as many as 2 million uh, landless peasants. Um, so when the parliaments gradually came into being, who were the parliamentarians? It was mostly those landlords. Uh, and uh, so uh, there, were, there were several strikes against parliamentary democracy. Uh, uh, the, the, the critique of it as not representative would have been certainly true, uh, and the critique, the Leninist critique of, of it as a tool for the domination of a particular uh, ruling class would also have been largely true. During and after World War II, the Middle East entered a phase of decolonization. Uh, decolonization was pushed along by a number of important uh, developments, of course. One of, one of the key ones was that the Nazis rather gave conquering and occupying other countries a bad name. Uh, and uh, so it was a little harder for the Dutch to go back to Indonesia after having been under Nazi rule and make the argument that they should uh, be in charge of Indonesia. And Suharto and others threw this in their faces. They were saying, well, I don't know, weren't you kind of colonized recently? And how, how did that feel? Uh, so um, uh, I think there's, there's a kind of moral economy argument to be made that it was harder to make the case for col uh, colonization after uh, the war. Um, um, then, frankly, the imperial powers were much weakened by the war. I mean, you know the, the economic straits into which Britain and France and, and uh, the Netherlands fell uh, uh, during and after the war. Uh, so coming back to the British or the French republics uh, and saying, well, now we're, we're over the war and we're, we're, it's true you can't really afford the coal in winter so well, but we've got, we've got this administrative job to do in Algeria or in India. That was a really hard argument to make. Another feature of decolonization, however, it, it seems to me that was important, was that the, the European colonial period in the Middle East and in much of Asia, I believe, depended heavily on the people there not being highly socially mobilized. That is to say, Typically in India, you had the vast majority of people lived in villages of 300. They were largely illiterate uh, and um, didn't have ease, ease of communications with one another. 
even during the great uh, revolt that the British called a mutiny in, in 1857, they were passing around messages inside uh, the chapatis, uh, inside the, uh, uh, the bread. Uh, so it was a very primitive kind of, of uh, conspiratorial uh, communication system that could be enlisted in a revolt. Well, by the middle of the, of the, of the 20th century, people had moved to cities and formed political parties and had newspapers and uh, they were what you know, the great political scientist Karl Deutsch talked about. They, they, were, they were socially uh, and politically mobilized. And, uh, and so you had a movement in India demanding that the British leave at the same time as you had a public in Britain rather unwilling to pay taxes to, to maintain an administration of India. Um, and in the Middle East, the movement for independence took on uh, two main forms, I would argue, or possibly three. The, uh, what, on the one hand, you had mass incorporating anti-colonial parties. Uh, so the Neo-Destour, the new constitutional party in Tunisia led by Habib Bourguiba, uh, was a party. And it, it agitated against French rule. Uh, it, I think, very wisely uh, decided against cooperating with the Italians and the Germans during the war. Uh, and so it came out of the, the war seen by the Allies as, as having behaved honorably. And by 1956, the French had to let it go. Uh, and, and what came into being then, uh, the post-colonial state, was a state ruled by the Neo-Destour party and it was ruled by a president for life, Habib Bourguiba. So you, a decolonization didn't produce democratization for the most part. And the other possibility was where you had already parties as in Egypt, uh, which was semi-post-colonial in this period, uh, you had the Waft Party, which became increasingly tainted as corrupt, dominated by big landlords, you know, during the 1947-48 Palestine events, uh, the Egyptian army uh, intervened, uh, but uh, the, the, the bureaucrats back in uh, Cairo who were supposed to be supplying new shiny weapons to the Egyptian troops often sold them on the black market instead and, and sent shoddy old uh, rifles to, uh, uh, to, to the, uh, the Egyptian troops. And, and, and the Egyptian young officers mind it. In 1952, they make a coup. And there are a whole series of colonel's coups in, in the 50s. Uh, you have one in Iraq in 1958. And these coups, although they are coming from the top and although they're conducted by uh, junior officers for the most part, have a popular element. And the, the populace in Cairo rose up in 1952 and burned much of the city. Uh, in 1958 in Iraq, there was a popular uprising in, in conjunction with the military coup. Uh, Nouria Said, who was the pro-British uh, prime minister, had kept Iraq out of the uh, 56 war, uh, was seen as by many Iraqis as uh, obsequious uh, to the British, um, uh, was, uh, was killed and buried. And the crowd in Baghdad hated him so much that they dug him back up and dragged his body uh, through the streets uh, just for good measure. Um, so uh, uh, these, um, uh, these regimes were overthrown uh, either, either 
you had a, a rise of, of these mass incorporating parties or you had colonels regimes with some popular support. And one of the things that um, we can see is that as late as 1969, you had another one of these officers, coups in, uh, in, in Libya, not against, directly against the Italians who had lost Libya uh, in uh, the course of World War II, uh, but against um, uh, a monarchy which kind of uh, emerged uh, in the aftermath and was very conservative. Well, how did these post-colonial regimes maintain their legitimacy, their popularity? Because many of them appear to have been very popular. I don't know that we have opinion polls from that period, uh, but I don't think that you could afford to pay for all of those people in that crowd uh, behind Abdel Nasser there. Uh, and uh, so I think they were genuinely popular. Well, first of all, they played a role in gaining national independence. And so that always redounds to one's uh, credit. Uh, and then uh, they often organized to fight wars, not so much in a place like Tunisia, but in Egypt you had a number of, of uh, military conflicts in which the colonels not only had made a revolution but then led the nation. Uh, 1956 was a moment of great victory for Abdel Nasser, uh, and uh, he was helped uh, by the intervention of, of President uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, who was afraid that the uh, the conflict over the ownership of the Suez Canal, Egypt claimed it back in the post-colonial period, uh, that that conflict uh, might well uh, push Egypt into the arms of Moscow. And uh, so the American president uh, <coughs> intervened on, 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 the, on behalf of the Kurds. Uh, and uh, so th in some instances, they were seen as victorious defenders of the nation. Uh, they conducted, for the most part, land reform. Uh, and so that, th that situation, which was frankly pathological, that came to exist in the Middle East as a, as a result of the transition from the Ottoman to the, uh, to the capitalist uh, systems of land tenure, where you had large numbers of, of, of propertyless peasants, and you had a few thousand families owning all the best land in the country and, and having huge estates. And this was true in Iraq, it was true in Egypt. They ended that situation. They made laws that you couldn't own more than 600 acres. They broke up those huge estates. And this, this move had two benefits for them. First of all, they liquidated the old ruling class which, against which they had made the revolution. So they made sure it couldn't come back. Second of all, if you distribute the land, you create a rural middle class. And that rural middle class then subsequently was loyal to the regime that had created it and, and fostered it. So you, you get a social base. Um, these regimes typically adopted a policy economically of, uh, of uh, import substitution. They tried to uh, limit imports and to make things locally, kickstart industry. There wasn't a lot of business capital in these countries. Uh, there weren't great entrepreneurs with uh, billions to invest. Uh, and so it was often thought that the state would have to do it. In some instances, the state did it in anticipation of then pulling back once a, a strong business class was created. In some instances, the regime gradually went socialist and believed that the state should have a strong uh, position in the economy. Uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, 
I think probably wasn't a socialist at the coup in 1952, but by 1960, I think he was. Uh, and Egypt came to have uh, a, a, um, a political economy where half of the uh, economy was in state hands. Uh, this is not quite you know, to the extent of the East Bloc. So in Hungary, it was probably more like 90%. But it's a very substantial state sector. Uh, it is a socialist kind of economy. And, and it contrasts that with Nehru's India, also self-proclaimed socialism, where only 25% of the economy was in state hands. Uh, so um, uh, these state-led efforts at industrialization, because the state would make for the first time large factories, textile factories, and so forth, um, uh, did create uh, a, a moment of, uh, of increase in national income. From 1960 to 1970, the average wage of the average Egyptian worker doubled. That gives you a little bit of a clue as to why they're so enthusiastic there. Uh, and um, later on, of course, it's well known in, e in, in development economics that once a certain number of people move from being peasants into the cities and they have some upward mobility and you have a, a, a new middle class, that getting further increases becomes much more difficult. Uh, so uh, the, the early stages uh, are, are much more fruitful in this regard. And then, of course, the colonial powers, for the most part, hadn't been terribly interested in educating uh, their, their, their charges. Uh, Lord Cromer, uh, uh, Evelyn Baring, um, was the, the ruler of Egypt for uh, uh, some decades. And we have a memo from him in, in 1906 and one of his administrators said, well, shouldn't we start some schools for the Egyptians? And uh, he wrote back uh, words to the effect that, well, we did that in India after the Macaulay Minute. And the ingrates turned around and formed the Congress Party and are trying to kick us out. We shall not make that mistake in Egypt. Educate only as many as you need to run the civil bureaucracy. Uh, so Egypt comes into independence largely illiterate. The colonial powers hadn't been very interested in an in, uh, in uplift of that sort. Uh, and uh, so these uh, nations, the new nation states, found enormous numbers of schools. And th they aim for, for universal education. And they largely succeed over time. They, you know, at, 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 at age 20, if you look at a place like Egypt, the vast majority of people know how to read and write now. Abdel Nasser even made very utopian pledges. So he said that all Egyptians could have a free education through the BA. And everybody who got a BA, a bachelor's degree, would be uh, awarded a job. Well, I wish we could live in that world where that worked. What would actually happen if you followed policies premised on such a promise? Wouldn't you get large numbers of people who were pushed through huge classes and got shoddy educations and who ended up largely unemployed? So some of these uplift programs of the, uh, the new nation states were a little unrealistic and caused problems later on. These new nations, the post-colonial nations, had wonderful constitutions. They promised you the moon, free speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of this, freedom of that. 
weren't actually ruled by they, that, that way. They were secret police states. And you were constantly being spied on. And, you know, they did have civil judges who could notice the difference between what was in the Constitution and how the, the government actually behaved. And it became increasingly inconvenient because people would file lawsuits and things to, to, to constantly having to deal with the civil judges who were trying to slap down state practices. Um, and Egypt, in particular, is a very litigious society where people did dare to sue the government. Uh, and so gradually, these uh, states uh, declared states of emergency, which set aside the freedoms uh, uh, putatively put forward in the Constitution. Uh, and uh, once the states of emergency were uh, announced for any reason, they were awfully difficult to get rid of. Syria announced a state of emergency in 1963. It was only set aside finally last April. It appears to have been replaced by a series of statutes and de facto practices which are, if anything, worse than the state of emergency. But at least the state of emergency is off the books. Likewise, Algeria de declared one in 1992. Uh, it, again, was taken off only last spring. Uh, Tunisia's was abolished last spring. Um, Egypt's state of emergency, I fear, is still with us. It was announced in 1981. And, and uh, the, the, the revolution in Egypt is in many ways incomplete. And here's one area where it's incomplete, is that there's still a state of emergency and military rule. Um, <clears throat> ironically, many of these post-colonial states made their way in the world uh, by arguing that they were what stood be between uh, the world uh, and uh, uh, Muslim fundamentalist regimes, especially after the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Uh, and so uh, although in the Western press, in the Western mind, the image of the Middle East is that it's full of you know, uh, religious fanatics, uh, in fact, the rulers of these countries depicted themselves both to their own middle classes and uh, to the outside world as, as, as uh, bulwarks against religious fanaticism. Uh, and um, uh, in, in Egypt, uh, the regime saw itself uh, you know, as, as a progressive, socialist, uh, modernist regime, which you know, was keeping the Muslim Brotherhood from taking the country back into the medieval ages. Uh, similar arguments were made uh, in Algeria and Tunisia. Uh, and um, uh, these arguments were made to educated middle class people inside the country and especially to women. Because many of these states adopted a project of uh, what my colleague uh, Denis uh, Candioti has called uh, state feminism. Uh, it was a kind of paternalistic uplift for women coming from the state uh, in which they had to be liberated. Uh, and um, they would threaten these women with uh, the, the Muslim fundamentalists. Um, and then, especially after 9-11, uh, uh, this argument gained traction and purchase in, in Washington and London and Paris, that someone like Zainuddin Ben Ali in Tunisia uh, or Hosni Mubarak in Egypt 
however odious they might have been, however authoritarian, however much they were at the head of, of uh, corrupt police states, uh, were uh, better than an al-Qaeda takeover. Uh, the, the idea of al-Qaeda being popular in Tunis is bizarre to anyone who knows Tunis, but um, this is the kind of thing that was said. Uh, and uh, so they, they, this was one of the sources of their legitimacy. Now, the crux of my argument is that these post-colonial regimes and their popular sources of legitimacy started to unravel in the 1990s. And uh, this was under the impact of neoliberalism. You can see similar things in Latin America, by the way. But uh, there was enormous pressure coming from Western capitals uh, and from the uh, Bretton Woods institutions for them to reduce the size of their public sectors, uh, which were depicted as bloated and inefficient and lacking in competition and so forth. And some of that may have been true, although, again, once you get to a certain stage of development, uh, uh, it, it's difficult even, even with strongly capitalist societies to get beyond it. Uh, so um, there was an attempt to privatize. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the side effects, however, of privatizing in this kind of environment, we have a very authoritarian state ruled by a small circle uh, at the top, by a small elite, is that privatizing creates opportunities for a kind of insider trading. You know, if you trade in securities uh, and you hear that a, a company uh, uh, is on the block, you're legally not permitted to make a private investment trading on that insider knowledge. This law seems to me not to be very effective, in fact, or we wouldn't have had the crisis of 2008. However, that's the law. You're not supposed to engage in, in, in insider trading. And I'm making an analogy. I'm saying that if the Mubarak government decides to sell the Egyptian steel mill uh, to a private concern that the Mubaraks know that this is going to happen. And the Mubaraks have relatives and friends and they can make a phone call and say, hey, guess what's coming on the block? So in Egypt, Ahmed Ez was a steel magnate in the 1990s and a, uh, a confidant of the Mubaraks, uh, somebody who came to have a high position in the uh, uh, National Democratic Party, uh, the, the three lies of e Egyptian politics. Uh, it wasn't national, it wasn't democratic, and it wasn't a party. But um, uh, in any case, uh, he, he emerged uh, as, as, as a high official in that. He also had the steel mill. And when the state steel mill, which was his main competition, was privatized, guess who bought it? And he was close to uh, Gamal Mubarak, uh, so uh, the, the son of the, of the dictator. In Tunisia, uh, the, the successor to Bourguiba was Zinedine Ben Ali. He, um, he married a social climber named Leila Trebelsi. I, I don't know if these stories are true, but it is said that she, she was a, a, a hairdresser, and she very cleverly set herself up to be in a, in a shop that took care of the hair of the officers. So she met the officers, 
and uh, then married a general, uh, Zainadine bin Ali, who then became the president. And um, she was a very good sister. She was a horrible first lady, but she was a very good sister. She had 11 brothers. And <laughs> she kept coming to the president and saying, well, this brother, you know, we need to set him up in life. And uh, couldn't you give him that sector of the economy or this sector of the economy? <laughs> and so over time, the Trebelsis became a dominant economic elite. They owned all the newspapers, so you couldn't criticize them in print. Uh, and that would have been dangerous anyway. And if you started a small business, they would come and ask for it, uh, and so forth. So um, uh, the, the US embassy, we now know because of uh, WikiLeaks, estimated that uh, in 2006 that half of the uh, economic elite in Tunisia was related to the president. Uh, it was nepotism on steroids. Uh, and uh, then, you know, in an oil state like Libya, uh, the Qaddafis also engaged in various kinds of insider trading. And um, the Qaddafis benefited unfairly from a uh, reputation deriving from the 1970s of being progressive and supporting progressive causes and so forth. But by the time you come to the zeros, they're just another one of these seedy neoliberal uh, billionaire elites. Uh, so uh, they were monopolizing the, the oil profits uh, for their own family uh, enterprises. Uh, and it was a good place to park the sons who were often ne'er-do-wells. One of them wanted to be a football player and, and got on a team in Italy, but he, he kept failing the drug test, so he <laughs> ha had to be let go. But then he had a very nice perch waiting for him back in Tripoli as the head of the oil company, uh, and uh, so forth. So these were, <laughs> these were mafia states, uh, and uh, they, were, um, uh, they were blocking people's, uh, people's futures. There was high unemployment among college graduates. It's estimated that the corruption of the Ben Ali state may have taken as much as two or three points a year off of economic growth. Well, if you had had that growth, because they discouraged foreign investment, if you had had that growth, you might not have had such a big crisis. Uh, there was repression, arbitrary arrest, torture, uh, high unemployment, especially among college students, uh, I mean college graduates. Mm, if you ever find yourself as the dictator of a small country, uh, my advice to you is to keep the college graduates happy. <laughs> All through history, this has been a mistake made by dictators. The, the ones who know how to read and write and think, you know, those you have to give jobs. Uh, and um, then there were these phony elections they often had to, to establish themselves. Uh, and um, so we know the story from there. The, the Mohammed Bouazizi, this uh, unemployed, uh, probably he was a high school graduate, uh, uh, was harassed. You know, he was reduced to selling vegetables off a cart. And even then he was harassed ultimately set himself aflame. Uh, and uh, his story was so heartbreaking and so resonant with an entire generation of 20-year-old Arabs who found themselves similarly constrained by the state, blocked both politically and economically, uh, that it, it provoked these demonstrations. And, and in Tunisia, the demonstrations grew and grew, and they moved from the rural towns towards the capital. And ultimately, you had 
several hundred thousand people on Bourguiba Avenue, which is not, by the way, a very long avenue, uh, and, uh, and, and forced then the regime uh, to, to fall. And, and, and I would make an argument that where these, where these revolts had success, two things happened. First of all, you had flash mobs. Uh, uh, where, you know, on Facebook and Twitter and so forth, you, you can say, let's all go to the mall. That's called a flash mob. Sometimes goes badly. At California recently, 5,000 people showed up at the flash mob and somebody was trampled. And It's not always good to have a flash mob. But they, they, they made political flash mobs. They, they could assemble large numbers of, of youth in the cities. These were youth revolts, by the way. Uh, there were other people involved. And they, so they... Um, uh, by assembling in this way and paralyzing the economy, scaring away the tourists uh, and so forth, they, they blackmailed the rest of the elite. They said, we want Ben Ali gone. You take care of it or we're going to be here every day. And so the rest of the elite thought about it. And, and you know, what would, could you do? You, could shoot, you couldn't shoot several hundred thousand people. Uh, so Rashid Amar, the chief of staff, told Ben Ali, according to uh, the, the press, he said, Mr. President, I'm not going to shoot the, the Tunisian people for you. Well, if you're a dictator and your chief of staff tells you that, you may as well start the helicopter revving up right there. Uh, and, and then s similar things happened in, in Egypt. So um, the other, uh, let me, I, I'm going to go through some of these slides because I have to finish up now. But. Um, uh, these events in Tunisia then provoked the Egyptians to do similar things uh, and to get rid of Mubarak in much the same way. You had an estimated million people in downtown Cairo at some point. I think that may be an exaggeration, but still an enormous crowd. And the, the rest of the Egyptian elite, even Mubarak's old cronies, said, well, you know, you need a vacation in Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, and uh, they, they put him on a plane. Uh, and uh, in the aftermath, you get this transition. And as I said, what these young people say they want is transparent, uh, free and fair elections. I say to them, good luck. But uh, that, that's the demand. And um, you have the problem of transitional rule. Maybe we can leave that to the question and answer uh, session. Because in Egypt, the, the military stepped in. They did appoint a civilian government, but it's appointed by the military. And this is, I was in Tahrir Square this summer a lot, and uh, in Egypt, and this is, uh, the platform of the people is that the military council must step down. That, that, that's a very dangerous poster, and whoever put it up is risking uh, uh, jail and torture. Uh, but that's one of the demands in Egypt. Uh, and then, um, subsequently, there are also big disputes between sort of left-leaning secular youth and more fundamentalist uh, activists. This is Tahrir Square again, and you can see some of the Salafis have come out, the, the very conservative religious forces. They're a small minority in Egypt, but people are kind of afraid of them. There are similar uh, struggles in Tunisia between secularists and uh, the Nahda party. Uh, and then now in, in Tripoli, the military governor of Tripoli, uh, Abdel Hakim Belhaj, you know, was, was, had been imprisoned in, in Guantanamo. Uh, so, you know, in some ways, the situation we're now facing as you move towards parliamentary elections in Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya uh, is a replay of the 1920s where you had parliaments elected in, in Egypt and in Iraq. Um, 
So it's a, it's a new age of liberalism on the surface, but the content is very different. Uh, these, this is not a, a, a big landlord game, and it's not happening under the tutelage of Western powers. Uh, it's something that's, that's boiling up from the people, uh, from a, a generation of youth whose economic prospects and whose political prospects both had been blocked by what were essentially mafia states that had battened upon them and were exploiting them and were highly corrupt. And they, have, they, they, they seem to feel this is a logjam. If you can remove the logjam, open up both politics and, and econ economics, then at least we have a chance. This is what the youth would tell you. At least now we have a chance. Before, we didn't have one. Uh, so thank you very much, and, and we'll move to questions. Thanks very much for that. Uh, lots of interesting things to discuss there. Uh, we have around about sort of 25 minutes or so for questions. There's a reception afterwards, uh, so we'll aim to uh, finish at about quarter to eight so we can all go and have a drink outside and you're all welcome to join us uh, there. Uh, but uh, we can now move into Q&A. So if you just want to raise your hand if you'd like to ask anything. Have we got microphones at the ready? Yeah, uh, we have one there. Yeah. Good evening. Um, my name is Hassan Hassan. I come from Bahrain. Uh, thank you for the insightful talk. Um, in your blog, uh, you've called uh, on the U.S. to punish the Bahraini government by relocating its base from Bahrain to Qatar. I'm not sure why you chose Qatar. It does not strike me as the most progressive or democratic of the GCC states. But my question is, by removing its base, wouldn't the U.S. be losing an important leverage tool vis-à-vis -vis the Bahraini government? and push the country even further into the Saudi sphere of influence? And wouldn't such a step fundamentally undermine the modernist wing or branch of the Bahraini ruling establishment? Thank you. Well, thank you for that question. Uh, it is a, a searching one. Um, yes, um, well, I, I didn't have time to get into it, but uh, you know, these, these uh, popular revolts spread beyond uh, Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya to uh, Syria, Bahrain, uh, and on a much more reduced scale, uh, even Morocco, Oman, and so forth. In Bahrain, um, the, the crowds came out in Pearl Roundabout, and um, uh, a lot of them were organized by the Wafaq Party, which is the party that uh, is favored by the majority of the Shiite uh, in, in, in Bahrain. But the, the uprising or the, the demonstrations were also supported by the Wad party, which was the Sunni party. Uh, so it was a mixed bag. And then the people who wanted this put down were also mixed. Uh, the, 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 the great businessmen of Manama uh, include both Sunnis and Shiites, and, and they, uh, this was bad for business. So I think they were uh, instrumental in, in, uh, in asking the king to put it down. Uh, and so this uprising in, in Bahrain was crushed. Um, something like 34 people were killed, more wounded, many arrested, hundreds. Uh, there are allegations of mistreatment in, in prison. Um, well, it is a principle of, of uh, human rights law, the, 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 the International Declaration of Human Rights, uh, and uh, subsequent instruments of the United Nations to which Bahrain is signatory, 
um, uh, that freedom of assembly is a right. Uh, and that freedom of assembly was taken away from the Bahrain people uh, wrongly. And uh, hardline forces inside the government clearly decided that rather than negotiate in good faith, uh, that they would just crush this thing. Well, I didn't, I believe, use the diction that the US should punish the Bahrain government by moving uh, the Fifth Fleet headquarters from Manama. I said it should move the Fifth Fleet headquarters from Manama because otherwise it looks as though the United States agrees that it's all right that this happened. Uh, it's an ethical stance on my, on my part. I, I think it's wrong for the United States to keep its fleet in a country that behaves this way. Uh, and uh, so um, while it is true that uh, Qatar is not a, a particularly democratic country, on the other hand, you know there are only 200 50,000 of them, they do all know each other. And I think, I think the emir hears about it if they don't like a policy. Uh, uh, so it's, in any case, he hasn't, he hasn't killed any of them, to my knowledge, uh, and uh, certainly hasn't prevented this kind of thing from happening. So um, uh, I, I, my, my stance was simply a matter of, I don't think that the US government should be associating itself with these kinds of things. And of course, it's a little bit naive on my part, because they had bases in Uzbekistan. And you know, uh, 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 Islam Karimov, uh, as Craig Murray will tell you, boiled people. Uh, and then Donald Rumsfeld was you know, perfectly happy to have bases there, nevertheless. Uh, uh, and so um, uh, it, it's, it's more a matter of um, my own insistence that, uh, that ethics not be divorced from, uh, from diplomacy. Uh, and it's, I guess it's an anti-realist stance on my part. Okay. Um, yeah. If people could keep their hands up so I can get a sense of where people are. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to ask questions about your last two bullet points there, great power politics and neoliberal billionaires. I'm a former intelligence analyst with the UK Customs Service and the day after the fall of Milosevic in Belgrade, I wrote a report suggesting that smuggling and corruption issues had actually risen because it wasn't so much a question of who's gone, it was a question of who was still there and clearly deals had been done so that certain people could stay. My first question is, um, is it not the case that there is a very real risk that deals will have been done and the moneyed interests will still manipulate things? And secondly, and related to that, um, their friends in and outside their countries is it not the case that the Chinese and Russia, Russian veto of the UN resolution on Syria means that, for all practical purposes, the uprisings have now stopped? Okay, those are, those are good questions. Um, with regard to the persistence of the old elite, I think it's different in each country and it depends on the character of the elite. Uh, in Tunisia, I mean, if the U.S. ambassador was correct that 50% of the economy was in the hands of the relatives of the president, well, then, then a social revolution has occurred because they're gone. Uh, they're in prison or, or killed or, or in Jeddah. The Tunisians take a particular delight in thinking about Leila Trabelsi in the niqab. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, 
so I think continuity in Tunisia is more difficult uh, because of the narrow character of the economic elite and it's been broken up and my guess is that things will open up. Uh, it's not that they're not smugglers. Or, uh, people made a lot of money on Libya in, in Tunisia, by the way. Uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Libya as well, my guess is that uh, there will be a substantial transformation of the character of the elite. There are a lot of people who are carried over, but they were mainly the technocrats that Gaddafi brought in uh, in the zeros. Uh, and uh, the, the people with real power, I think, uh, in the Qaddafi regime are toast. Uh, and, uh, and then since it was an oil state and since wealth was very highly concentrated at the top, uh, if you get a new group of people in uh, through parliamentary elections and so forth, I, I think that's going to really change things. So I would say that Tunisia and, and Libya have a shot at being not just political revolutions, but at being social revolutions, just because so much property will have changed hands. Egypt, not so much. Uh, and of course, people, the, the, the protesters in Egypt are very upset about this. But although in, in Tunisia, the, the, um, the uh, rally for constitutional democracy, the party of Ben Ali, was dissolved. And 14,000, as I remember, 14,000 or so politicians uh, and, and bureaucrats and so forth who were associated with that regime were forbidden from politics for 10 years or something. They're banned public life. Uh, it's similar to debathification in Iraq after 2003, but on a much less, lesser scale. Uh, in Egypt, that hasn't happened. I mean, the party was dissolved, but people who were high in the party can run for parliament, can be appointed to cabinet, can, can have positions in the bureaucracy. Uh, and that was, I to showed you that uh, slide from Tahrir Square. Uh, all through July, they reoccupied Tahrir Square and one of their demands was that the holdovers of the old regime be moved out at a faster pace. But uh, uh, I, although Ahmed is, you know, is in prison and, and some others are in exile from that uh, crony elite around Mubarak, I think it's entirely possible that a lot of the remnants of the old regime will, will get back in in Egypt. Uh, and there are opportunities for people who are in the bureaucracy uh, through smuggling and, uh, and, and uh, other forms of corruption uh, to build up new power bases. Um, Arms smuggling is a big problem. And since the revolutions, uh, there's been a substantial deterioration in security in all of these countries. Uh, I read the newspapers assiduously in Egypt this summer, and uh, there were firefights in restaurants in Shobra and this working class district or in, in rural provinces. And in, under Mubarak, I mean, I can't guarantee you it didn't happen, but maybe it just wasn't allowed to appear in the press. But one didn't see a lot of reports about firefights. Uh, uh, so I think there are a lot of guns floating around. And uh, this, this is one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, results of that smuggling I was talking about and of the decline in security. Okay, uh, we have one up the stairs, not sure, okay. on the right-hand side, there, yeah, Katerina. Yeah. Katerina Dallacora, LSE. Um, I'm having trouble hearing you. Okay, I'll speak up. <laughs> um, you started off by uh, talking uh, about the 1920s and 30s and the beginnings of parliamentary democracy in the region. 
And I wanted to ask you uh, perhaps to take this a bit further in comparing it with the present situation. Um, in particular, I'm interested in um, the claim that you made, which I do not necessarily agree with, that the demand of the uh, current uprisings has been uh, transparent, democratic um, uh, elections. I'm not sure it has actually gelled in that way, in that sort of specific form. But in any case, I agree with the general thrust of what you're saying, that this is the, uh, the, the, the a little bit more inquiry, but nevertheless, this is the demand. What does this show in the relation, about the relationship between uh, Middle Eastern societies and uh, the West, and also um, the international norms of human rights and democracy? And how does, that, does it compare to the 20s and 30s? Yeah. Well, I, as I said, I, I think that the, the 20s and 30s gave parliamentary governance in the Middle East a bad name uh, because it was so associated with the imperial powers and it became associated then with a, 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 a rather unpleasant ruling landlord elite. Uh, and you couldn't say it was representative in any serious way, uh, especially as time went on. I spent a lot of time talking to activists in Tunisia and Egypt, uh, including April 6th and others, and they won elections. Um, I mean, I think it's quite remarkable. And, 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 and with regard to you know, sort of the role of the West and uh, the position of the Middle East in the world and so forth, I think that the, that, that the demand on the part of the 20-year-olds of the and the 30-year-olds in the Arab world for uh, for uh, uh, parliamentary democracy uh, has to be understood uh, as a post-Soviet development. I mean, the Soviet model has collapsed. The, God knows exactly what the Chinese model is, but although it, it, it seems to produce a lot of economic growth, I don't know of anybody who wants to emulate it. And sort of, you know, let, let's be like President Hu. Uh, I, I don't hear any cheering sections in the world for that. Uh, and so I think that this generation of young Arabs who you know, are very media savvy, it's not true that they're all on the internet and tweeting all the time, uh, but uh, they watch satellite television and they, they're hooked into the world. They want what they think of as a normal life. And they're defining a normal life as the kind of politics that happen in, in, in Europe. Uh, and many of them are substantially to the left of anything that you have viable in Europe, uh, I think to the left of the French Socialist Party, for instance. Uh, April 6th, for instance, which has been a leading force in the Egyptian Revolution, uh, is in favor of uh, uh, workers' rights, uh, union rights. Uh, they're supporting textile workers who are striking in Helwan, uh, and, and so forth. Um, so it's a kind of a, it would be recognizable as a left party if it were in, in Europe, but I think probably uh, somewhat to the left of, uh, of what we have here in the neoliberal age, um, substantially to the left of your labor party, which has now fallen down on the job. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, that's what they say they want, and I think it's just that we, among the youth in, in the world, we now have a new imaginary of what a normal political life would look like. And what they knew were these corrupt police states, and they objected both to the police state aspect and the corruption aspect. 
and they're hoping that um, with the proper uh, regulation of it, that, that parliamentary regimes can come into being which uh, can avoid that kind of extreme nepotism and corruption and which also would make a space for uh, freedom of expression. Now, in Tunisia, they're far in advance of Egypt in these regards. Uh, they're having their elections on October 23rd. And the Tunisians that I talked to were, were just universally optimistic about these elections. Uh, there was some worry about how well the fundamentalists would do, uh, but not extreme worry. And, um, and enthusiasm about campaigning. I went to a campaign out in a small town, uh, which was probably not the territory. It was probably you know, favored the fundamentalists. But this was a small coalition of five parties uh, who, who called themselves the the Progressive Modern Coalition. Uh, and um, they went out to this small town, and I went to their rally, and they were uh, guaranteeing these people in Calibia that they would uphold freedom of expression and, and you know, make sure Tunisia didn't fall back into a police state. They didn't talk a lot about jobs, and I thought, you know, they're not very good yet at being politicians, because I think... <laughs> People in Calibia were a little bit more interested in the prospect of a job than they were in whether their right to publish op-eds would be preserved. <laughs> but uh, but uh, this is the kind of discourse that one saw. And uh, I, obviously, they're going to be disappointed, because we all know what parliamentary governance really is. It's much more messy than that, and it's not, not going to uphold their high ideals. Uh, but the likelihood is that it will be much better than what they had before, and it will be much less likely to block their aspirations in the way that the, uh, the police states did. Okay, um, I think I should, I keep not seeing this side of the room, so if we could go, there's yeah, man in the check shirt there. Um, Niels Eitenmeier, LSE. Um, what, speaking of the fundamentalists, what do you see, uh, how big is the risk that, the, uh, that Tunisia or Egypt will um, become states of the rule of fundamentalists, of Islamic governments, which may introduce uh, Sharia or things like that? Yeah. So, the, uh, I mean, this is a vital question throughout the region now. Um, Let's back up a little bit, though, and look at the evolution of these political parties, which I'm calling fundamentalist. Uh, um, it's, it's difficult to know what to call them. The French like this phrase, uh, Islamist. Uh, but the French have this thing about the ending ist. So they, they even call Christianity Christianisme. Uh, and uh, everything is an ism to them. And I think it's confusing if you call these fundamentalists Islamists for most people, they don't know the difference between a Muslim and an Islamist, so they think you're, all, you're talking about all Muslims. And there's a kind of disease of language here. Uh, that, um, so I'm, I'm making a stand against Paris on this one. Um, uh, it is true that in French, there's not a good counterpart to fundamentalism, which is why they, they wanted to try to get away from it. Uh, although they have the, the analogy to Catholic uh, uh, ultramontanism, which is anti-glisme which I think is perfectly fine, much better than Islamism. So, but in any case, whatever you call them, they have changed a lot over time. I mean, the old Muslim Brotherhood, when it first came into being in 1928 and after, 
You know, it was very vague about its conception of politics. What, what was a good government from the point of view of the Muslim Brotherhood? And it seems to be that they, they imagined, uh, Hassan al-Banna and his colleagues imagined uh, an emir, uh, uh, some kind of um, religiously pious person who would be a kind of dictator, and, but who would be advised. There would be a, a council, a sure council that would advise them on what was the right policy. So, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood's initial foray into political thinking, which was, again, quite vague, and this is my interpretation of it, it could be challenged, but they seemed to be looking for Oliver Cromwell in Mufti. Uh, and um, uh, in the last three decades, the Brotherhood's political thinking has become quite sophisticated. And even in the time of Sadat, when Sadat reinstituted uh, 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 parliament, it, it was a parliament based on phony elections. It was kind of the Chicago system. <laughs> the, the dead could vote. The party machine always won. But you know, it was a parliament. It had elections. But the, the Muslim Brotherhood was forbidden to run in these elections as a party. Uh, because it was religiously based, but they, Muslim brothers, could run under other party rubrics. And if you had a very popular person in a constituency, another party, even the leftist party or the Coptic uh, uh, party, would put up a Muslim brother there. And sometimes they would win. And, and, and this, uh, they had 17 uh, seats in parliament, I think, at one point in the 1980s. And in 2006, they got 88 seats. So. Over time, I think the Muslim Brotherhood has decided that parliamentary politics is a game that they want to play and which could benefit them and their goals to move Egypt towards being more of a, of a pious Muslim society. Uh, and um, this is not out of the ordinary. Religious groups often in modern history have mobilized for parliamentary success. The Catholics in Poland, um, the evangelicals in South Carolina. I mean, if you're worried about the imposition of Sharia, use it Charleston. Um, so I think this is a very remarkable development, and it's one that I, I think a lot of Western observers haven't caught up with. Now, of course, there are questions, and, and some people say, well, it's insincere. The, they're really sort of the Nazis circa 1928, and they're just waiting for a Reichstag fire. There'll be a, once they get in, there'll be some kind of a parliamentary coup, and there will be the end of the elections, and then they'll put in the emir. Uh, and um, well, you know, life is uncertain. I can't guarantee you anything about all that. But I, I have talked to these people, and I've followed them pretty closely, and I don't think so. I, I think. They don't want that anymore. Uh, and um, so the Nahda party in, in Tunisia, uh, I think, is really, really committed to, to, to these elections. Now, they're religious people, and they believe in blasphemy and all kinds of things that would get in the way of, of, of democracy. So when I was in Tunisia this summer, the, um, there was a showing of a film. Uh, by a Tunisian uh, woman who had made it about Tunisian secularism. And it, it was called Ni Maitre Ni Allah, uh, uh, Neither Master Nor God. 
And uh, the Salafis, the ones with the beards and the white hats, uh, showed up and uh, threw stones. They were upset. Uh, well, the Tunisian middle class is pretty secular, and they were absolutely furious that the Salafis had engaged in coercive violence over this film. And they organized meetings, and I, I went to a number of them, and demonstrations and, and so forth. And uh, Rashid Ghanoushi, the head of the uh, Nahda party in, in Tunisia, was asked about all this. And he said, well, they shouldn't have thrown stones. He said, on the other hand, there shouldn't be provocations. Well, the secularists knew exactly what that meant. And then there were more demonstrations against what Ghanoushi had said. So um, they're not perfect Democrats. Uh, but if you get them into parliament and they have to trade horses and, and uh, compromise in the way that you have to do in parliament, I think they can be brought in uh, to, to a, a parliamentary framework, uh, and, and that they, they want to. But will they try to implement laws based upon uh, medieval notions of, of religious law? Uh, yes, and, and moreover, they already have. I mean, Mubarak's, one of Mubarak's cabinet members, uh, a minister of justice in 2000, came out and said, well, we're already an Islamic state. The Muslim Brotherhood should just like go home. Uh, we've changed Egyptian law so much in the direction of Sharia that we're essentially an Islamic state. Uh, and, you know, what he said is an exaggeration, but there is a kernel of, of truth there. Uh, a, a lot of countries in the Middle East, in response to the rise of the Muslim fundamentalist parties, have taken steps to move national law closer to the popular conception of Sharia. Of course, from my point of view as a historian, uh, Sharia is a fluid and changing thing that has never, in fact, actually ruled Muslim societies uh, and uh, which is constantly being constructed and reconstructed. So it's, it's not one thing. But the Muslim Brotherhood types think it is one thing, and moreover, it used to be in power, and they want to bring it back. And here, by the way, is a difference between Turkey and the Arab world, because the, uh, the, the Muslim-tinged political forces in Turkey I think have largely given up on Sharia, on trying to implement it, because there's so much backlash from the secular establishment, and it's not popular. Uh, and uh, uh, Prime Minister Erdogan came to Egypt recently and, and advised the Egyptians to have a secular constitution. And the Muslim Brotherhood had thought of Erdogan as a potential ally, and they talked about the Turkish model, which I don't think they really understood. Uh, and so they were very wounded, because he's urging them to give up this Sharia project. But I think that's the next stage of politics in these regions, is how, how close will law and practice be enforced by the state on a Sharia model. But you know, the prospect is not that they will be dominant anytime soon. Uh, political scientists, pollsters are estimating that the Muslim parties in Tunisia and Egypt will get between 17 and 30% of seats. And they're not even running in all the constituencies and things. So this apocalyptic scenario that you get kind of Islamic Republic of Egypt I mean, I can't say it won't happen, but it's not on the near horizon. Okay. Uh, Good evening. Being an Israeli, uh, we have forgotten Israel in this scenario. And the question is, uh, what, in your opinion, the influence of the Arab Spring on the peace process in uh, the Middle East? Yes. Well, 
You know, the question about Israel and the, and the peace process and so forth is very interesting to me because we who deal with the Middle East, you know, have put a lot of our efforts into understanding this particular crisis, which is an, now a 60-year-old crisis and doesn't show signs of stop being a crisis anytime soon. Yes, uh, so um, uh, that's right. So what's, what's really interesting about the, uh, so far, the Arab Spring uh, is that this is a dog that hasn't barked. Uh, I mean, we all know what Arab publics think about Israel and Palestine and so forth, but it hasn't been put forward at the forefront of their demonstrations, their demands. Uh, my guess is that the old regimes used it to divide and rule. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the thesis is that uh, people like Mubarak said, well, uh, you don't want to weaken Egypt too much because I'm engaged in this uh, confrontation with the Israelis. And uh, um, we can't find clear evidence of his having been engaged in a confrontation with the Israelis. But uh, this is what the kind of thing he would say. Uh, and, you know, uh, appeal for national unity on the grounds of the Arab struggle with Israel and so forth. Uh, and um, so the, the youth who have made these revolutions have typically put that issue to the side. So you never saw Israeli flags being burned. Uh, you didn't see, I, when I was in Tahrir this summer, I, I never saw any Palestinian flags. I never saw any posters about the Palestinian issue. It was very domestically oriented. Now, of course, there are a small group of protesters for whom this issue is much more central, and they're the ones who invaded the Israeli embassy in Cairo uh, recently. But I really think that they're a small group, uh, and uh, the, the others don't approve of this kind of thing. Again, it's not because they you know, are pro-Israeli or anything. Um, one big question is, you know, what, what the impact of all these uprisings will be on Israel and the Palestinians. And so far, um, I think there, there, there is a subtle impact. Um, you would know better, but my suspicion is that these big demonstrations against the kind of um, class stratification that's happening in Israel, where, you know, 18 families are billionaires and they're owning much of the country uh, increasingly, the, the kinds of problems of neoliberalism that you saw in the Arab world are also afflicting Israeli society. And for people who had this vision of Israel as a just society with kind of a socialist background or whatever, uh, uh, they're really disappointed. And quite apart from anything else, it's also getting hard to afford housing and, and just a material issue. So um, there was a little bit of a Tel Aviv spring uh, there. And um, maybe, I mean, it would be impossible to know, but it's com not completely maybe unconnected to what they saw going on around them. Uh, and everybody has been waiting to see what the Palestinians would do. Uh, but so far, there haven't been a, a lot of protests there. And my guess is that when you know you're under, you feel yourself under pressure, as the Palestinians feel themselves under pressure from Israel, uh, that old argument of, well, you don't want to have a divided polity because then we're weakened in the face of the enemy uh, might have some purchase. So, you know, who exactly do you come out against? Is it Mahmoud Abbas? Is it Hamas? Um, uh, and if you did that, who would succeed them? And, and, and wouldn't the Israelis take advantage of the transition and so forth? So you haven't seen so far 
Uh, and, and contrary to a lot of predictions among pundits in Israel, uh, you haven't seen a Palestinian uprising of any, of any sort. Uh, and I'm not sure there's a prospect of one. So the Arab Spring is happening, uh, I think, in each country for domestic reasons. Uh, it's not completely disconnected from geopolitics, but that's not what's driving it. And I have to tell you, as someone who has had to teach the Arab-Israeli conflict and write about it, and, and it's a huge headache for all of the rest of us who are not involved. It's like you know, being in the car with a couple that's getting divorced, and it's a long road trip. And, and to, to have the Arab Spring happen without much reference to that issue is very refreshing. <laughs> Okay, I know there are a lot of people still with questions to ask, but we have uh, run out of time. We are, however, uh, adjourning to outside for reception, so people who still have questions can perhaps come and ask them directly of the speaker at the reception. I'd just like, before we all disappear, to thank Professor Cole for an extremely interesting...